6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our previous two sermons on Revelation 14, we learned that Jesus Christ will come down on the last day of the world on a white cloud, and he will judge the entire world. Every believer will be brought into the peace and the joy of the new Jerusalem. Every unbeliever, everyone who rejected Jesus Christ, along with the dragon, that's the devil, the two beasts, and every demon will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever. In other words, on the last day of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ will bring about a permanent, everlasting separation between believer and unbeliever. And that is designed to give us the comfort to stay firm in the faith, to run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking in faith to Jesus Christ. He is coming for us. He will bring us to an everlasting glory where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But this makes our text this afternoon confusing because now we read about the seven angels who are given the seven bowls of God's wrath and they pour out the seven plagues on the earth. What's happening here? Christ has returned. The world's been judged. The end has come. And now more judgments are coming? Are people going to be punished with new plagues after the day of judgment? Certainly not. We need to understand that our text this afternoon runs parallel to the previous passages in the book of Revelation. It covers the time period between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. You have to know something about the book of Revelation. You have to have this complete picture of the book of Revelation. It has a cyclical, recurring pattern to it. It speaks about the period of history between the first and the second coming of Christ, then repeats it, then repeats it again. So the opening of the seven seals covers the time period between Christ's first and second coming. The blowing of the seven trumpets covers that same time period between the two comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the pouring out of the seven bowls covers exactly the same time period. You wonder why would the book of Revelation do that? I mean, isn't that confusing? Isn't that a strange way to to write a book, to write history, to, to repeat yourself over and over, always in a slightly new way? Well, there's a special design here by the Holy Spirit. It takes time for us to understand what a dangerous world we live in. And the Lord builds it up to make us understand more and more how severe is the oppression of Satan in an unbelieving world. And at the same time, how much comfort we have. Each piece of the book of Revelation makes us understand what kind of world we live in and gives us the encouragement to cling in faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are in that final section. We see what a deadly world we live in, but we also see how severely God will judge and punish the world. We see that in the opening line of our text where it says, the seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. God's wrath, his judgment is full-orbed. It's come to the fullest. God's nostrils, to to use the words of Moses, are, are, are 
blazing with anger against a world that has dared to, to reject him and oppress his church. And they will be punished. We wonder why God is so angry. We should understand, brothers and sisters, we have such a good and great God. We have a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And he brought a gospel to this world that is to be proclaimed to every man and woman, every boy and girl with a well-meant gospel offer. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. People have rejected that. And they have scorned it. They may even have tasted something of the goodness of God's grace and turned their backs on God. Now we know from Revelation or from Hebrews 10 that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what we're learning in our text this afternoon. It's what we have to understand about the history of our world. When God is so good and so patient and people still reject the gospel, they will come under his wrath and his judgment. So, brothers and sisters, as we look at our text this afternoon, we will gain the comfort and the encouragement to stay the course. Cling in faith to Jesus, no matter how many trials and tribulations and persecutions you have to endure. Also recognize we have an almighty God who does not idly stand by when the world rejects him. And thirdly, if you have any heart at all, if you have any empathy, if you have any sympathy for the world in which we live that is surely going to hell, grasp the opportunity to share the gospel with your neighbor that perhaps, by the grace of God, some may be saved and never come to know the fury and the wrath of God. We summarize our text in this way. God's final judgments come from the tabernacle of testimony. And we will look at a covenant sign, a covenant song, and a covenant judgment. So now John describes the vision which he's about to receive from his Lord Jesus Christ in this way. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Now John doesn't say that very often. He says, I received a sign, I received a vision. Not very often does he say it's a great and marvelous sign. He said that in chapter 12, when he saw the woman with child being attacked by the dragon. That's the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life and the death and the triumph of our Lord and Jesus Christ. That's great and marvelous to hear about that. But now John says, I've got something else great and marvelous that I've seen and I'm going to share with you. This is what it is. Seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed. Now we'll talk about the seven angels later because they come back in verse 6. What we focus on is the last seven plagues. And a plague in the Bible is not just a pestilence. It is a punishment by God to a sinful people. You've got to ask yourself, what is so marvelous What is so wonderful about this plague which God is going to bring on our world? Do you know what it does? It describes for us something of the character of our God. He is a holy God and he is a covenant God. 
We see that already in paradise. When God created the world, he created Adam and Eve, and he came to them in a covenant relationship, a partnership with promises and demands, with blessing, but also curse. He offered them everything. He offered them the world if they would love him and walk in his ways. He put there the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that man could clearly demonstrate it that he would decide for God and want to live for his praise and his glory. Some might say, what a stupid tree that was. If that tree had never been there, if God had never spoken of his wrath and, and that man would die if he'd sinned, this world would never have messed up. But you know what? When Adam and Eve heard of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they heard about the warnings of God, when they heard about the, the wrath of God, when they heard that God would punish sin, they said, Hallelujah! We got a God, He doesn't like sin. He doesn't like a broken world. He made a beautiful world, and He is offering this to us forever, an eternity of living with God in beautiful blessedness, that we might love God, know God, and live with Him eternally. You have to understand, brothers and sisters, that the wrath of God and the judgment of God emphasizes that much more that He is also a a holy and a righteous and a loving God to His people who love Him and walk in His ways. Fine, we say, that was great for Adam and Eve, But what does it do for our world today, which has fallen into sin? we got millions of people who don't know God, who don't belong to the church, who are not in a covenant relationship with God, to be blunt. What good does this do for the slimy drug dealer hanging around in the alleyways of the big cities selling drugs to everybody he can? What does God's promises and demands have to do with him? What does it have to do with some tribal chieftain in Africa who every year marries a a 16-year-old virgin in his little little clan and he dumps his old wife like she was a worn-out dish rag, a dirty dish rag? What does God's promises and demands have to do for them? Everything, brothers and sisters. In a sense, when God created this world, he made a covenant with all humanity. He made his promises and demands. He gave his blessings and his warnings to the whole world. And as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, there isn't anybody in our world who doesn't know God, who doesn't see his greatness and his power in creation itself. And how many people in our world haven't heard the gospel, the well-meant gospel offer of salvation in Jesus Christ? And as the book of Revelation makes clear over and over, all those judgments brought into this world are a wake-up call from God. The, The man who is diagnosed with cancer, parents who see their their children going into astray and, and messing up their lives and messing up their marriages, people who have lost their job, how can they not wake up and get on their knees before God and say, God, I've lived without you, but now my life is shattered and broken. Please, come to me. Let me know you. Let me know the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. But they're not doing it. Not wholesale. 
And after all the goodness and the generosity and the faithfulness of our God, and people continue to reject him and live in sin and persecute the church, God has had it up to here. His wrath is full-blown. His judgments will come. He has been good. He has been patient, as Paul says in Romans 2. He even says something like this, or this is what he says in Ezekiel 33. I, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? That's our God. He says to the world, oh wicked man, I don't like it that you're going to be judged by me. Will you not turn? Will you not repent? But if you don't repent, you will feel my wrath. And I will cut you off forever. John says, this is great and it is marvelous. We're not taking any pleasure in the fact that there are many in our world who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if they continue in that line, they're going to hell. How can anybody smile about that? How can anybody feel good about that? But what we feel great about is that our God is an almighty creator who brings the gospel to the world, offers it genuinely, offers a, a new world, a new paradise where every man and woman, every boy and girl may live with him in perfect happiness. He offers it freely in the gospel. But if you reject that, you have to understand that the wrath and the justice of God will come upon you. That is the, the justice and the righteousness of our God. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, what we have to understand is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not just for the world, but it's for us. It's for you. You can't just sit there and say, well, I'm here in this church building. I'm fine. It's the world out there. It is that slimy drug dealer in the downtown streets of Edmonton that we're talking about. No, we're talking about you. We're talking about us. Are you living in a covenant relationship with your God? Do you hear his promises? Do you hear the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you also hear his warnings? And by God's grace, are you getting on your knees before God and saying, my sweet Lord, you gave your son to die for my sins, and I am so grateful. That fills my life. It overwhelms me. And I want to love you, and I want to serve you, and I want to be with you forever. That brings us to our second point. John writes what he sees. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. And those people standing by the sea of glass begin to sing a new song. Well, that just seems to be going a little bit too far. We're talking here about the judgment of the world. People are singing about it. How do you sing about judgment? How do you sing about hell? How do you sing about people who are going to be tormented day and night forever? How do you do that? You have to be careful. You have to understand the context. We read here that they stand by the sea of glass. We know from Revelation 4 that God's throne in heaven, 
surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, there is a sea of glass before that. That is the floor room of God's dwelling place in heaven. Sea of glass. Now there are people standing there. It has to be people who have died, have gone through the door of death and are with Jesus Christ in heaven. These are the martyrs. People who may literally have died for their sins, but certainly men and women, boys and girls, just like us, who have endured the trials and tribulations of life, who have endured the persecutions of Satan, who have fought the good fight, and now stand with God at the sea of glass. And this sea of glass is now fiery. It is red, which symbolizes the justice and the wrath of God. We begin to see another connection because we also read here about the Song of Moses. This sea of glass, which is now red, has a certain connection with the Red Sea that we just read about together in Exodus 15. The Red Sea where Pharaoh and all his host were drowned in that horrible death of the water coming over them. Do you remember the first time you heard that story? I remember from when I was about four or five years old, Bible teacher teaching to that, that to us in a classroom, outlining the whole story of Israel there in Egypt. We were horrified as a class of little boys and girls, horrified to hear a Pharaoh murdering all those baby boys, crushing the life out of the people of Israel. Israel was going to die in Egypt. The church was about to be finished. And now they were, they were being led to the promised land by God. They, they made it safely through the Red Sea, but Pharaoh decided to pursue them. As Moses said, he was going to kill them all. Babies, boys and girls, men and women, all to be slain and murdered there at the Red Sea. And then God brought the water down on Pharaoh and his entire army, and they died. We didn't cheer. You don't cheer about that. You don't stand there with a smile on your face as you see all these horses and all these men drowning and going to a horrible death. But you're so thankful that God stepped in, that he delivered his people, that he acted justly that he dealt with the enemy in such a way that they deserved, that they could no longer attack God and his people. This is the context in which we have to understand our text. It's not like we take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we take extreme pleasure that we have a God who protects us. A God who has offered his gospel to the whole world, but those who reject it and attack him and his people will feel his wrath and be punished and separated so that God's people may move forward to the dawn of a better day, the day of the new Jerusalem. We know the same thing today, brothers and sisters. We live in a world which there, where there is so much hatred for our God and so much violence and immorality. There are people who murder, who rape, who rob without remorse, without pity. The killings that go on, We've got brothers and sisters here now worshiping with us in the Edmonton area, worried sick about their families back in Sudan because of the violence. Life is worth almost nothing in some places in our world. 
And it's also true here for Canada. There are those who will perform an abortion. There are those who will step in and euthanize you, perform a mercy killing if you don't want to live anymore. We also have scientists and we have philosophers who are teaching our world that God is dead. God is poison. The God of the scriptures is the cause for war. He is the cause for incest. He is the cause for for all kinds of acts of violence within the family and society, of pollution, of global warming. God is the cause. God is at fault. And we live in that world. And we say, oh Lord, how long will this go on? How many babies have to die? How many women have to be raped? How many times does your name have to be dragged through the mud here in our world? When will you step in and bring that tremendous separation? Let us through the door. Bring us into that eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. And those who have rejected you and done that consistently and steadfastly, bring them away. That we don't have to live in a world of of sin and misery and hatred. If that's what they want... Give it to them. But Lord, we beg of you, wash away all our sins, renew our lives, wipe away our tears, and allow us to enter into eternity with you. Now those who stand at the sea of glass are described as those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. Of course, the beast, he thinks he's the winner. Every time he causes a Christian to lose his job or promotion, Every time he has caused a Christian to be martyred, every time he brings trouble into a marriage or trouble into a family where believing parents see their children struggling with the sinful lifestyle that has consumed so much youth of our society, the beast thinks that he has won. What he doesn't understand, he certainly didn't understand it when our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, is killing people, taking away their money, Taking away their their freedom and their joy of life in this world is only outward. It's only physical. It doesn't touch the soul. These who are victorious say to the beasts, you take my job. You take my money. You take my life. You take away my reputation. I don't like it. It's awful. But you cannot take away my faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Savior. He washes me clean from, by his blood from all my sins. I am richer than I could ever imagine in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. And that makes us victorious over the beast and over the, the image of the beast and the number of the beast. Now, these who are victorious, these who have fought the good fight of faith and now are standing at the sea of glass, recognizing what God will do to an unbelieving world. They sing the song of Moses, and now it's also called the song of the Lamb. And here's what they sing. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of Ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Truth be told... They're not singing the, the song of Moses because these words are, are taken from the, 
the rich fabric of the entire Old Testament period. You see what's happening. Moses saying about deliverance from Egypt. But that, that's just a foretaste of the greater deliverance that would be brought about by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Golgotha. And it will culminate in a day that Jesus Christ returns in the clouds of heaven to take his people into the new Jerusalem. That requires a new song, an amazing song of thanksgiving and praise to our God who will not let anything separate us from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now when we look at this this hymn that they're singing there by the sea of glass, there's a couple of things we notice. In that song, they are talking about the God Almighty, King of Ages, the Holy God. So they emphasize that God is the Almighty God, and He is holy. He's unique. He is apart. He's set apart from everything else. Our God is not a midget. Our God is not puny. Our God is not trembling because of of the beast and the dragon. He is the Almighty. Even the dragon can't move unless Almighty God lets it happen. We have a God who says, this is my world. This is my son who died for sinners. I promise you an everlasting salvation. He's going to do it. You You can count on it. You can count on it that if you are a believer, you're going to heaven. And one day you're going to enter the new Jerusalem where Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear from your eyes. The second thing you notice about this hymn is the incredulity, the amazement, the the jaw-dropping amazement of believers when they look at the world, which continues to refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How is it possible? How can you be a scientist working with plants, working with animals, working with chemical structures, how, how can you be a scientist and still believe in a theory of evolution? How, how can you deal with cancer and not seek your hope in the great physician, Jesus Christ? How can anybody in our world be having marriage problems, trouble with their children, and not go to the only one who can offer forgiveness and guidance and comfort. I'd like to give you an example to emphasize what we're talking about here. Death itself. I understand, you understand that young people don't think a lot about death. Maybe even middle-aged people don't think a lot about death because death seems so far in the future. At this stage of life, you are immortal, But older people think about death, particularly when they get sick, when they're in the hospital and in old age homes. I've been in a lot of nursing homes and a lot of hospitals for almost 30 years. I go into a room. There's four people there in a room. They're all extremely sick. They may be old. They're at death's door. One of them is a member of the congregation. And you talk with that person, you you read and pray, and and sometimes you have the experience that the other people are very quiet, very respectful, very thankful to hear something positive and upbeat as they're all facing death. But then there's that time you're sitting in the nursing home. There's this other lady in the room. She's a sweet old lady. 
She's 89 years old. She looks like she could be your grandmother. Beautiful, older lady. She's recently broken her hip. She's not recovering well. You know she's probably going to die. When she finds out that you're a minister and you want to read and you want to pray, she hears about God. She goes, God? I don't believe in a God. I don't want to hear anything about a God. And I say, I don't say it, but I think, lady, you're about to die. You're about to see what eternity is all about. You're going to meet your maker. And you don't care about God? How can you not? How can you not believe in an almighty God who gave his son to die for sinners, who also shows to you right now the gospel, who calls you to believe, to repent? And he'll give you everything. He'll give you eternal life with him. How is it possible that there are still people who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I am utterly at a loss. But brothers and sisters, don't you be at a loss. We stand incredulous before an unbelieving, hostile world. But surely, surely you know where your hope and your salvation is, don't you? Will you not say, more important than your job, than your health, your holidays, the pleasures of life, is not more important to you than all of that, that Jesus died for your sins? That brings us to our final point. And we see that the temple, or the dwelling of God, is being opened up. The vision becomes more specific when the temple is described as the tabernacle of testimony. Now we know that tabernacle, testi- uh, tabernacle temple, same thing. Tabernacle was the portable temple in the desert, replaced by the permanent structure of the temple. But the tabernacle of testimony was a well-known Old Testament expression of what it meant. If you went into that temple, if you could go in there and go into the last room, the most holy place, And there was the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim and the mercy seat where God sat. And if you could open the Ark, there was a couple of things in there. The most important thing was a copy of the Ten Commandments. And that's what the Tabernacle of Testimony refers to. The testimony of God are the Ten Commandments, the covenant document of promise and demand, designed especially for His church. He says to His church, I am your God. I delivered you. This is what I expect of you, that you walk in my ways and live to my praise and glory. And we have to recognize that and live by that. But this tabernacle of testimony is also designed for the whole world. As we said, there's not a human being in our world who does not know of the existence of God. And pretty much everybody has heard the Ten Commandments. Pretty much everybody has heard the Gospel. On top of that, everybody has the moral law in their own hearts, which is a summary of the Ten Commandments. Paul says in Romans 2, Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. God is a covenant God was shown to the whole world who he is. He promises salvation. He demands faith and obedience. Every human being is accountable. Everyone who stands before God 
if he does not believe and if he does not repent, will be judged. And that is demonstrated when we read about the angels coming out of that heavenly temple, dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes around their chests. So they had these beautiful garments on coming out of the temple. They were God's ambassadors. And that is clinched when we read that one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Four living creatures, we know that from Revelation 4 and 5, are the highest order of angels, God's special agents. They give to the seven angels the seven bowls filled with the wrath of God, so those angels are coming from God himself to dispense judgment. Now we read that the seven angels have the seven plagues, and they hold the seven bowls full of the wrath of God. These are the plagues. But when we hear about the bowls, it rings a bell for us. Does it for you? When you hear of the seven bowls, does that ring a bell? If you think of the whole book of Revelation. Back in chapter 5, when we read that the lamb who was slain and who, who was worthy, when he took the, seven, the scroll with the seven seals and opened it, then the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In heaven, the angels and the 24 elders, they all hold bowls. They're your prayers. The 16-year-old was denied a job because he or she said, I will not work on the Sunday and came home that night and broke down and prayed to God, that prayer went up to God. It was incense to God. It smelled so sweet. Gathered in a bowl, held by angels, before the face of God, who hears the 15-year-old crying out, who's lost his job, her job. God hears it. God feels it. God knows what you're going through. And he's going to take care of you. That's true for all of us in our trials and tribulations, our struggles, the lost opportunities, the hurt and the damage put upon us by our world, all those prayers drawn tenderly to our God, gathered in a bowl like sweet-smelling incense to him. He says, you're my children, and I hurt because you hurt. I feel your pain, and I will not allow this world to go on maligning my name and hurting you, my people. I'll not let it continue. I'll judge this world. I've given them opportunity. I've been patient. I've given the gospel. But I will bring judgment on anybody who touches the apple of my eyes. And that is answered now, brothers and sisters, in the seven bowls of God's wrath, judgments brought in this world that will culminate in the final judgment of all. Anyone who rejects God Anybody who persecutes the church and does not repent will feel the fury and the wrath of God eternally. And at this moment, John sees that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, from the Old Testament, we know that smoke or cloud in the temple signified the presence of God and all his power and all his glory. But now here in our text, the presence of God, the smoke, the cloud, 
represented God who was angry, furious, livid with an unbelieving world who persecuted his church. The smoke filled the temple. Even the four living creatures and the angels had to withdraw. And so do we. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when our God gets angry, when our God brings punishment on the unbelieving, you cannot stand there. You cannot be near. It is a terrible thing. Indeed, brothers and sisters, when God brings judgment in our world, we need to be very humble and very quiet and stand back. It's a terrible thing. If, for instance, one of those scientists, philosophers I was talking about, who's promoting that God is poison, and this this man's books have become so popular in our world, people believe that God is the cause of, of war and everything. If he were to die in a plane accident, if we would cheer and say, yeah, that guy's dead, that'd be so wrong. Should rather have said, Lord, give me a few more days to talk to that man and bring him the gospel. If a mosque would explode and hundreds of of Muslims would die, you cannot take joy in that. When those planes went crashing into the Twin Towers a number of years ago, we cannot laugh at at the justice and the fury of our God. We stand back. We say, God, you do your thing. You do what you have to do. And we know it's right and it's good. But we stand back. We withdraw while you in your fury bring your wrath upon this world. And we understand that when the smoke clears, you are still there for us. Because your wrath and your fury are not for us. We've always believed in you. Even when sometimes we fell into sin, and we went through our dark, unbelieving time, when by your grace we returned, we did not see the face of an angry God, but a loving God who says, I will always take care of you. Brothers and sisters, as we come now to the end of our text, we stand before our God, filled with awe and amazement at his love, but also his wrath. We say, you're something, God. You're really something. You're so powerful. You're so gracious and so loving. You have given your son, you've given us your word to the whole world to hear it. With a well-meant gospel offer, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You have encouraged us to believe in you and, and to stay the course even when we are being persecuted by our world. We also recognize, Father, you've given us an opportunity to be ambassadors of your word to our world around us. We don't, we don't hate our neighbor. We feel sorry for our neighbor. And have you ever given us something to offer to them? We're not cheap peddlers. I don't show up on a doorstep with a shiny briefcase to, to bring a trinket, to sell baubles, to sell cheap stuff. We've got the word of God. We've got the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We've got the hope that can change lives, that can, that can offer people eternity with boldness. Let us go out. We who have been transformed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, let's get out into our world, seize every opportunity 
to share with our neighbor the good news of Jesus Christ at school, at work, in your neighborhood, in the mission field, through the whole world. Get the gospel out there before it's too late and there's no more time. God gives us the opportunity for our salvation and to bring that gospel to the world before the fury of God is poured out and there's no second chances and no point of return. Amen.